This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and tell a friend to help them find Out of Water also. Welcome, folks, to another episode of the Out of Water Podcast. My name is Sam Caston-Smith, and I will be your host today. Joining me is Will Bushman. Part five of Christmas. Part five of Christmas. Today, we're going to be hitting on the wise men. And uh, even though this is this is surprising to a lot of people, but the wise men are actually not part of the Christmas story. Did it's you? all a lie. It is all a lie. If we've done anything via this podcast this month, it's destroy nativity scenes for everybody. <laughs> That's right. It's not the barn. It's not the wooden basket. It's not all of that stuff. And in a true nativity scene, the wise men aren't there. The wise men, as we're going to, to see, do not come to visit Jesus until he is what in the Greek is called a pideon, which is a, a child, a, like a toddler. And so he is not going to be the newborn baby Jesus. They do not show up on the night of the birth. It will come later. But because that story has always been wrapped up into the Christmas story, we're going to get on top of that story and we're going to talk about it today today. Because it really is the celebration of foreigners that are now coming to worship baby Jesus, um, which shows you that he's not just a savior for Israel. People from 700 miles away are making a huge trek to come and pay homage to him. And that's why this is the classic text for what we don't ever think about the post-Christmas holiday of the church calendar called Epiphany. That's right. The revealing of the light to more of the nations per se. That's exactly it. And so when, and so anytime you go to an epiphany service, they almost always are preaching from this passage about the wise men, because this really is the nations now coming to lay down their worship and their gifts to the savior who didn't just come for Israel. He came for all the nations, which is awesome. And so this is going to be found. We're going to start in Matthew chapter two beginning in verse 1. And so it says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea and the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. And so I want to pause for a moment on that expression, wise men. The The Greek that's behind there is the Greek word magi. Um, and you can hear the root of that, and it's almost like it's got the, the same root as magicians. It's like special knowledge. Um, And these people are almost certainly coming from a school that had been created in Babylon centuries earlier where people were trained up with like special skill set knowledge. And this in Babylon, it included, you know, magicians, it included astrologers, it included soothsayers, it included people that were just really good at reading situations and giving extremely wise counsel. And so back in the day when you had the Babylonians back, you know, 550 years before this, you had the kings of Babylon that would surround themselves with all these types of people. And so if you read in the book of Daniel, you know, the king would have a dream and who would he go to? He would go to, and it'll list all these different offices, you know, magicians and soothsayers and da, 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 da. Well, one of them was a magus or a magi or the magi, and Daniel is listed as being in charge 
and the book of Daniel, he is from this school that comes from Babylon. And so it's, you know, a counselor that's coming to the king to help him interpret dreams or signs or what's going on in the sky or omens or all that kind of stuff. That's what I want you to be thinking of when you hear the term magi. It's people that are looking for big signs of what's to come. They're interpreting you know, societal conditions, but also natural phenomenon and trying to make sense of it. And that's exactly who these guys are. And I think they trace themselves all the way back to the school that Daniel was in charge of. That's pretty wild. Yeah, really, really is. And I think it's crazy that these guys have the status to get in front of Herod. Yeah. I think that's fascinating because the Christmas story is now giving us, you know, both ends of the spectrum. Because mm-hmm. we look to the shepherds who should never have gotten the invitation to Jesus. Then we look at these guys who have you know, the resumes that say like in the world status, we're kind of a big deal. And even now we're going to see them go and bow at the feet of Jesus. So it's really fascinating. It's amazing. And so one of the things that we, you know, we either we don't know or we don't think about is that when, when Nebuchadnezzar in 586 BC, so almost six centuries before Jesus is born, he comes through and he destroys Jerusalem. He burns it to the ground, tears down the temple. And then we're told that he leads a whole bunch of people off into exile. In particular, we're told that he takes the very smartest people that are in Jerusalem, men like Daniel, and he takes them and eventually, you know, they climb up into the ranks. And if they're really useful to the Babylonians, they're put in the school. And so you have tons of Jewish people who leave Jerusalem, are taken into captivity in Babylon. And when you get to the period where they return to rebuild Jerusalem, a pretty small fraction of them actually go back to Jerusalem. And so what we don't realize is that Babylon has this massive population of Jews that are still there, that have built synagogues, that are that are talking about prophecies, that are that are mentioning all these things that Daniel and Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel, all these prophecies that they've been talking about, about this coming king, this coming king. And so when these magi show up, it's not like, gee, how did they hear? (laughs) No, this has been like fomenting and stirring and marinating in that culture for all this time. The the legacy of those prophets would have been pretty well known in the ancient Babylonian area. And so for those of you who don't know, Babylon is, you know, pretty much a stone's throw from modern day Baghdad, Iraq. So think, you know, modern day Iraq, this is where these guys are over between the Tigris and Euphrates. That's where we're talking about. All right, so Jesus has been born. He's been born in Bethlehem during the reign of King Herod. And so the wise men from the east show up and they say, where is he who's been born king of the Jews? That's a bizarre question, right? For we saw his star when it rose and we have come to worship him. And this is one of those things that, again, we read past But what would you have to see in the sky that makes you go, oh, the king of the Jews was born? I mean, in their time, something wild, I assume, because they can actually see the stars normally. Yeah, but but let's say this crazy comet came, you know, or some like phenomenal thing. What would make you go, oh, a king, oh, of the Jews, the king, the Messiah has been born. And so... This is where I'm totally stealing this from a video that I watched that I found really compelling. It's called The Star of Bethlehem. I think you can still find it on YouTube. But when they look up and they, they said, we saw his star when it rose and we've come to worship him. NASA, and I'm just going to pause here because this is just fascinating to me. (laughs) We'll see if it's fascinating to anyone else. But back in those days, 
we can know exactly what the night sky looked like. And so we know the approximate years that we should be looking at when Jesus was born. And NASA, because all of the stars and the planets and everything else move like clockwork, we can go back in time, look at the night sky and see what in the world could they possibly have seen. So either this is like, you know, an angelic being that's doubling as a star that's leading them. But the weird thing about that is no one else sees it, right? So you get these magi who show up and said, we've saw, we've seen a star, but nobody else saw it. Nobody else was like, oh, you mean that? Oh, of course. Yeah, that we all saw it. Nobody else has seen it. And so this is something that would have looked all kind of normal. And so when you go back, you rewind the calendar and you go back to September of 3 BC in the night sky, there was something that was extremely rare where you had planet Jupiter, which was called a wandering star, because when you look up at the night sky, the planets look like stars. But Jupiter was the king of the planets, and the Roman pantheon, he was the king of the gods. So Jupiter was considered the king, but then there was a fixed star called Regulus, which you can hear regal in that. Um, it was called Sharu in other cultures, like it's, but it's always been associated with the king star. So you have the king planet that moves around in the night sky because it's on an orbit around the sun, and it goes past Regulus, comes back, crosses Regulus again, and then goes back and crosses a third time, making almost a loop at one point where they're, they're actually sitting on top of each other. And so if you were on Earth in Babylon looking up at the night sky, you would see two of the brightest stars in the sky that are figurating each other. And it would have looked like this tremendously bright star that's done a triple conjunction. And this only happens once NASA's done the, the, the math on this. This only happens once every 38,000 years, right? So this tremendously bright star in the sky, very rare. It's the king planet and the king star that are crossing each other, doing a dance in the sky. And it's like, you know, I used to ask the question, like, would that get you on a camel to go 700 miles? be tough <laughs> no like i mean i'm not getting on a camel to go 700 miles and to leave my family for months because the king star and the king planet are dancing around but one of the things that these babylonian magi would have known was a prophecy that came in genesis 49 about who the messiah would be and it's a promise that's given from the patriarch jacob to his son judah and he says you are a lion's cub o judah and the scepter will not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he comes to whom it belongs and the obedience of nations is his. And so two things I want you to pull out of that. One, the sign of the messianic king is associated with what animal? A lion. A lion. And where is the ruler's staff supposed to be? Between his feet. And so when you look up at the sky, remember how I told you that they're crossing over each other and Jupiter's kind of doing a big loop that's going back and forth over Regulus? Do you know where that loop happens in the night sky? Somebody's feet. Right at the constellation Leo's feet. What is Leo in the night sky? It's a lion. And so they're looking up and they knew all the constellations. The constellations are way older than than the Babylonians. They were back in the days of Job, like more than a thousand or even 2,000 years ahead of when Daniel would have been. And so they're looking up in the night sky and they see this dance going on between the king star and the king planet. And oh, gee, where is that happening? It's happening at the feet of the lion. Gee, I remember there was a promise 
that the Messiah is going to come and the staff is going to be between his feet and he's going to be the lion of the tribe of Judah. And you got all that going up in the star. And oh, by the way, there's something else that happens at the night sky when this is going on. And that is recorded by John and Revelation 12, which is really weird. This is, you know, this is John. It's apocalyptic literature. And it says, A great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. And she was pregnant and gave, and she was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. So who is this? You know, this is talking about the birth of the Messiah. It goes on. And it says, another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its heads. And the dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child in the moment it was born. And so let me retell what's going on in John's description. You have a woman who is pregnant and she's clothed with the sun and she's got a moon at her feet and a a multi-headed dragon or a multi-headed serpent coming up behind well, if you know the night, st- night sky and you know the constellations that right up after Leo, right behind Leo in order of the night sky comes another constellation. You know what that constellation is? No idea. Virgo. You know what Virgo represents? Honestly, no, mine. Just hear it. Virgo. What, do you, what would you guess? Virgin. Virgin. And guess where the sun is when Virgo comes up? Clothing her. So like right over her womb, the, 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 you, have the, you have the lion that goes up, the whole thing's dancing at the feet. Then you get Virgo, the virgin, who comes up and the sun is shining over her womb. Well, gee, that's exactly what John just described, right? She's clothed with the sun. And oh, by the way, as she's coming up, guess what's at her feet? A new moon which is the beginning of the lunar cycle. It's like she's, she's just given birth to this moon that's at the beginning of its cycle, a new moon. And then do you know what's right behind them in the constellations? He's shaking his head no, because I, I would never know this unless I'd watch that video. Hydra. You know what Hydra is? Yes. The Got multi- a lot of heads. Multi-headed serpent. Hmm. And so when John is looking up, he's, he's saying, man, you know, a woman clothed with the sun. He's looking up and appealing to the night sky. And he says, a woman clothed in the sun, new moon at her feet, you know, all that stuff. You got the hydra coming up behind. And so John is giving you clues as to what he saw almost celestially at the time of Jesus's birth. And so now imagine when, when you're the magi, you know, and the, and the Bible has been saying that the heavens declare the glory of God, that the stars are singing, the moon sings, the sun sings. It puts all this like expressive language with these celestial entities. And now the wise men show up and they're like, of, of course, we saw, we saw it in the sky. Like, where's the king of the Jews? <laughs> like with all of those clues, now I can see, Oh, that's why they show up. Because without that, like if I just saw a really cool star in the heavens, I'm not going, oh yeah, king, king's born. And definitely of the Jews. Like, so God is writing poetry in the sky. Now, now I can't guarantee you that that's correct. But what I can tell you is for all of that to be going on in the sky at the precise time period, because remember, they don't show up when Jesus is born. 
They show up when he's a toddler. So at some point after his birth, they're looking up, see all this stuff in the night sky, and they're like, holy cow, Like I think the king of the Jews was born, the Messiah that we've been reading about in all the literature. Look at all these signs that fit so perfectly. Let's go. And they show up. Oh, the virgin shall be with child. Oh, gee, that sounds familiar. (laughs) You know, like all of that is going on at the same time. Yeah, it makes you feel like I'd go 700 miles if I knew all that. Yeah. And it makes it make sense that everyone else is like, what are you talking about? Yeah, because you're not looking up all the time going, oh, yeah, that is in the constellation. And they're not they're not doing that. But the Babylonians sure were. And that's amazing how faithful the Babylonians were for that. Mm-hmm. Because you're never knowing whose watch this is going to happen. Mm-hmm. Com- completely. So that helps to make sense. Now, again, this is all the theory of a guy who put this together in a video called Star of Bethlehem. You can make your own judgments. Go watch it. I think it's compelling. I, I do. I think it's compelling. And so when they get there and they say, where is he who's been born king of the Jews for we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him? I can't, I've never heard another competing theory that would have been hidden from the ordinary site, but that when you see it all put together makes absolute perfect sense and is, is stunning, actually the choreography of God. And by the way, what that does in the, in terms of God's sovereignty if all the planets and the stars are moving at clockwork, that means that God ordained this, what this guy in the video calls a celestial poem from the beginning, from when you first hurled the stars into motion, he knew this exact moment, these things would be making these images, which means, man, God is sovereign and he's been singing about this moment from, from eternity past before he's even planned the universe it's just it's wonderful and it's right down the alley because like we've been talking about if it was too small the magi would have missed it yeah it was too big everybody would have seen it Mm -hmm. because he's trying to make a point that these guys are the faithful ones who have been looking at the sky yeah these guys are the ones who show up waiting and expecting the savior of the world and that's something for us they're looking for it they're hungry for it uh and you see and and how the story plays out from this point not not everybody was It says in verse three, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all of Jerusalem with him. And so what that's hinting at is Herod is a maniac. (laughs) Like this guy is really, really awful. And so when it says that he was troubled and all of Jerusalem was troubled with him, that means that when Herod's in a bad mood, everybody's in a bad mood, everybody's going, oh my gosh, what's going to happen? Like he's, he's, he's getting riled up. Who's going to die? So let me just tell you. The reason why everybody's troubled when Herod is troubled, let me just kind of walk through his death toll. (laughs) So you have a guy named Mattathias Antigonus, who is his predecessor in the Hasmonean throne. He killed him. 45 leading officials of that party wiped out. John Hyrcanus II, gone. His brother-in-law, Aristobulus, the high priest, gone. His mother-in-law, Alexandra, like there's probably a lot of people who are like, all right, <laughs> not uh, me, we, not me. You're taking that back. What? I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> so his, his mother-in-law, Alexandra, he wipes out his wife, Miriam gone, countless citizens, 300 different military leaders. He murders. And so every time this guy gets worked up, somebody's dying, which even Caesar Augustus, who is the, you remember, he's the one who calls for the census. He's probably the most 
powerful Caesar and the, the most highly thought of Caesar. He said this, he said, it's better to be Herod's pig than to be one of his sons. Because the closer you were to him, the more dangerous it was and the more likely you were to die. Hmm. So when Herod is troubled, watch out. So that's what that means. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him because Herod was notoriously paranoid that somebody was scheming to take away his throne. And so when guys show up and say, hey, we heard the king of the Jews has been born. And And they have a lot of Jews there. And he's the king of the Jews. It's like, wait, what? I'm like, I'm surprised he didn't just go, oh, really? Off with your heads. (laughs) But instead, he's hatching a plan because he wants to know who this king is because he's got plans for this new king. And it says, assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So Herod is such a faithful guy that's looking for the Messiah that he has no idea about any of the scriptures of his coming, right? And so these guys who, who are educated on the subject say, oh, well, it's, it's, got to, it's Bethlehem of Judea, for so it's written by the prophet. And we talked about this in, in one of our last episodes. In Micah chapter 5, we're told that this is exactly where the Messiah is going to be born. And so they quote to him, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And buried in that verse also, it says, whose origins are from everlasting, or they call them ancient of days. And so this ruler is going to be born as God. And so the priests are like, yeah, yeah, this is great. You know, just six miles, seven miles due south. That's where he should be. And it said, then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Yeah, he's, he has no interest in doing that. But I, I want to look at a couple of things here. Do you find it at all crazy That you have these guys that are magi from Babylon who see a star and see this celestial poem in the sky, if that's correct. They get on their camels or their donkeys. They ride 700 miles through the deserts (laughs) to get to Jerusalem. And when they get there, they're like overjoyed, like the Messiah has been born. The king of the Jews has been born. Where is he? We want to worship him. They go to the priest. They go to the king. And they say, this Messiah has been born. And Herod's initial response is, I want to kill him because that's a threat to my throne. And then you have the priests. Their entire existence, their whole livelihood, everything that they're supposed to stand for is waiting for the Messiah, preparing the way of the Lord, looking for the kingdom of God. And when these wise men show up and say, we're pretty confident and all of our wisdom and skill that he's just seven miles south. Not one of these priests is like, I want to see. I, I wanna, I'm willing to take a seven-mile hike to go see if the Savior of the world has been born. Not one. And so you get, like, it's just fascinating to me. And I think it's instructive, too, that you have the people who are far off. 
that are willing to lay down everything, to give up their life, to, to come with treasure, to lay down at this Messiah's feet. They've been looking and searching and waiting and hoping, and their whole lives have revolved around an opportunity to go and to worship him. And that's one class of people that everybody wants to be a part of, right? A Christian should want to be like these guys. But then you see another flavor of humanity inherit. And by the way, you and I have some of this in us where it's like, wait a minute, there's another king. There's someone else that's coming to claim authority, that's coming to say that he reigns over not only this world and not only Israel, but over my life, and he has an absolute right to tell me how to live. And what's Herod's response? Off with his head. Off with his head. I do not want to submit. I will kill. I will fight. I will rage before I submit to an authority that's outside of myself. And there's a huge part of us that wants to war for the throne, to be to, to have authority over my life. And who is God to tell me what I should and should not do? And our culture is filled with a lot of that flavor right now. But I think the most tragic, because Herod's just evil. Like, I mean, he's, he's obviously evil. But the tragic one, and I think a lot of us have a big part of this in us as well, this flavor, is these people that are so caught up in the religiosity and going through the motions and going to the temple and lighting the incense and doing the daily prayers and doing the, the rigmarole and the ritual stuff that when someone comes and says, hey, God entered the world and he's seven miles from here, they're like, oh, that's great. You know, he, have fun. <laughs> you know, we're busy with our religion. Too busy with our religion to go and meet God. And it's like, I think that's in all of us. Wouldn't you, wouldn't you agree with that? For sure. How do, you, how do you see that? I've never thought about this part being like that. But it makes sense. You kind of... And it's fascinating that Jesus would come at this time with all of these different sects of things going on. Mm-hmm. Like, he did come, and we've talked about it, to seek and to save the lost. And even now, he's showing us exactly who his mission field is. That these guys with all the answers just don't have a desire to actually be in relationship. They'd rather keep it all up in their heads, keep it all up in their mm-hmm. nice, organized life. And yeah. Jesus disrupts that completely. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's like the, the theologian <laughs> is like, oh, interesting. There's a scripture about that. And it, here it is right here. Let me show you how smart I am. I know it's Micah 5 too, and da 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 And yet they're not, they're not drawing near. I mean, the whole, the whole basis of the scriptures is to draw us near to him, not to impress everybody with how smart we are, and yet they miss it entirely, entirely. And the scariest part for our listeners is that it's the scariest for us, you and me, because mm-hmm. we're, no offense to everybody else, but like... It's our job. Yeah, like <laughs> we do this all the time. It's really easy to know these, and we talk about it all the time, like, oh, I'm in the text a lot, but I'm doing it for... Not bad purposes, not evil purposes, for good purposes, because i got to teach, I have to preach, and that's part of the requirement. But there can be seasons where you're like, oh, man, I've gotten a little off track here. Mm-hmm. Like, I haven't met with Jesus personally, personally in a while. And it's like, whoa, how did I get, like, I got off. And <laughs> yeah. so when I look at these guys, I'm like, I'm not, like, unfathomable. Yeah. I'm like, huh. And it sneaks up. Like, it really does catch you by surprise. So I'll just, I'll, I'll, I'm going to get on the couch for a moment here. <laughs> <laughs> but but one of the things that surprised me most during my sabbatical like and I didn't mean to lead you into this. Oh wait, I know. Everybody This wasn't this wasn't me baiting Sam when you hear this. <laughs> or be in tears a moment. Anyway, um 
so I, when I went on sabbatical, like there's some things about a sabbatical when you're in pastoral ministry that are hard. Cause usually you're, you're jumping from one person's crisis to the next and you're living in the world of adrenaline and everything. And, but you're never dealing with yourself. You're always looking for, you know, who else can, who else's problems <laughs> can I throw myself into? And when you don't have that ability to, to medicate yourself by being busy and you're only left with yourself, like you start going, I need to get busy again. Ooh, <laughs> I'm not yeah. sure I like Need myself right now. <laughs> but the part of the sabbatical that really surprised me, like I will tell you that, and I, I hope this comes through, like I love the scriptures. I love studying the scriptures. I love reading the scriptures. I love being blown away by just how beautiful and awesome God is, all that like super genuine. But I realized something about myself on sabbatical that I had a really hard time just owning that this is reality. When I study the scripture, part of the reason why I get so excited is I want to go share it. I want to go teach it. I want to go talk to somebody about it. If I just, and so like being on your own and not being allowed to do that in some sense, like, you know, you're not allowed to teach. You're not allowed to do the stuff. Like, you literally not do. allowed. Not really? Like you're making a choice. <laughs> it was like, it, it robbed a lot of the joy out of it. And I was talking with Heather Clark, who's a friend of mine, I saw her in a parking lot. She was like, how was, how was your sabbatical? And this illustration just jumped into my mind. And I said, I, you know, when parents are raising kids and, and they get along and they, they're, they're having a blast with each other, but they kind of function in the home just to take care of the kids. You know, they're, they're feeding off of each other and they're enjoying it. Things are good, but everything is kind of focused on helping out the kids and so, and so many marriages when the kids go off to college and you're left with each other, but you don't have a unifying mission of taking care of the kids, which by the way, should never be number one in your marriage anyway. But in that moment, when the kids go away and now you're just left staring at each other and the relationship gets awkward, like I had that moment with God. It was really sobering where it was like, wait a minute, I'm, I'm coming across all this gold, but I can't just receive this as God doting on me. Mm. You know, the, the, the me and me and God, it was like, but I want to take this and go show this to somebody. And it revealed to me that the relational aspect, and I mean, by the way, that's a healthy thing to want to go show other people, you know, yeah. how awesome God is. But I felt so deficient in my personal relationship with God to just enjoy the scriptures as if it was just for us, the two of us. And it was like, okay, I don't, I don't like that, <laughs> you know, like. I, I need to get better with that. And I, like, you know, that's, I don't know that that's exact parallel to what these priests are, are doing, but it's, it is crazy how quick your relationship with God. I mean, when I, and hear me relationship hmm. with God can grow stale because you've replaced it with theology or trying to figure out some system that he fits into or, and, and you rob it of the intimacy of it all. And it happens real easy. And I think it happens to these guys in this story. All right, so Herod sends him away and says, when, when you find him, let me know so I can come worship him. Okay. Uh, kill him, in, in other words. And so verse 9, it says, After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that had been seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And so in that video, it'll show you like the star of, of Jupiter is due south of Jerusalem, 
roughly four months after this, which is the travel time or whatever. It, watch the video. So do with it what you will. Was it, you know, the the angel of the Lord or the glorious appearance of the Lord? We don't know. It'd be hard to find a house underneath a star. So who knows? There's all kinds of question marks with this. But when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. And that's where it's, notice it says the child, not the baby. So yeah. we, we've got some distance between the birth and this new house that they're living in in Bethlehem temporarily. So the, ba- the child is with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. So they know who this child is. Notice that. Don't miss that you have these grown men, these higher, higher up officials, you know, that show up and are falling down in front of a little child that's less than two years old, which is, is absolutely wild. And so it, then it says, opening their treasure, they offered him gifts. And all these are instructive. Opening their treasure, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So these are like really profound gifts that if you if you were living in the ancient world, um, and, and particularly in a religious family, this would have this would have been very significant. So you have you show up and you give gold. Well, gold is a tribute that you give to an authority. You give it to a king. You this is this is like saying I am under your authority and I am bringing you tribute from my lands. Mm to pay you for for reigning over us. And so it's like saying, you are our king. And then the next gift, frankincense. Well, frankincense was something that was used to burn the incense in the temple. It's something that priests used. It was a, an expensive spice, but it was used in the temple. And so you're coming and you're saying, okay, you're you're our king, but you're also our priest. And, and so why do you burn incense? If you, like I was raised Catholic. And so I can remember the altar boys or the priests coming down with the little censer thing and they would be slinging it around and clanking the chain and incense would be going up and they had incense in the temple. And David tells you that that incense, he tells you this in the Psalms, that that incense was meant to symbolize the prayers of the people. Mm. And so it's a mediating kind of a thing. So incense is somebody who is interceding on behalf of humanity, trying to bring humanity to God. And so that's the role of a priest. A priest is always trying to bring humanity into the presence of God, to bring their requests, to bring their devotion, to bring their worship. And so you give frankincense to a priest. Okay, so this little child, and now imagine this, you know, a one-year-old or an 18-month-old, he's getting tributes of a king. He's getting tributes to a priest. And then the last one is the weirdest, and it's myrrh. And myrrh in the ancient world had a couple of functions. It could be used as perfume, but you didn't give perfume to a a little toddler. The other use for myrrh also makes no sense, at least at first glance. And that myrrh was something that you used when you embalmed dead people. So when Jesus dies and they take his body down off the cross and Joseph of Arimathea has the tomb ready and Nicodemus shows up, he's got 75 pounds, is it 75 pounds, 75 pounds or 100 pounds, I can't remember, of myrrh and aloes that they put all over Jesus to keep his body from rotting or decaying. It was kind of a a symbol of respect before wrapping him up with linen strips and his death. And so 
crazy expensive gift from from Nicodemus, which also, by the way, reveals that he had come to the Lord, if you know his story. I just Googled it's close to $200,000 of today's market value. Wow, I've never heard that before. That's way more than I would have guessed. So this is like, <laughs> this is crazy investment that Nicodemus is laying down for the sake of Jesus to honor his body. But when these magi show up and give myrrh to a toddler, what are they saying? It's going to die. You're going to die. And so all of those images that we read about in, in Luke about how the nativity is a picture of the tomb and it's pointing you to his second birth, the resurrection, because all of Jesus's ministry is pointing to resurrection. That is the centerpiece of Christianity is we serve somebody who has conquered death. And so even as nativity is pointing to that, and now when you have these wise men who show up and say, we know you're the one, you're the king of the Jews that all the prophets have talked about, and we know what they have to say about you. You're going to take the sins of the world upon yourself, and you are going to die. You are going to swallow up death forever, and here's our tribute to you. And they give myrrh. Now imagine being the parents. <laughs> that would be pretty wild. Yeah, first I was always like, Joseph, you should fight these guys on Mary's behalf, because who are these guys to show up? But then even as we thought through Luke 2, you're like, oh, this was one of those things that Mary pondered, I think, mm -hmm. that she had to come to grips with. Yeah. I think totally, absolutely. And, you know, but you think about the awkwardness. It would be like, you know, showing up at a, a baby shower with formaldehyde or, or some other kind of embalming agent that's like, it feels wildly inappropriate. And, and they don't know if Mary and Joseph are aware of all this. They don't, they don't know Gabriel appeared to them. They don't know all this. So you got to imagine that as they're sitting there, and the awkwardness of just coming into the house and falling down and worshiping and giving all these, you know, tributes to a king and a priest and someone who is going to die for you, that Mary and Joseph, this this would have warranted a conversation. <laughs> you know, <laughs> small talk would have been awkward. Yeah. And I would imagine that these guys with their offices were I mean, if they're gonna ride seven hundred miles at the prospect of the Messiah being born, they probably knew. <laughs> all the passages about him. And so you can imagine like these magi talking with Mary and Joseph, like, are you aware? Mm. Um, That's cool. Cause like they're not riding 700 miles, getting there, giving the gifts, turning around and leaving. No, you're <laughs> you going to stay a while. You're going to stay a while and you're going to have conversations. And I, man, these guys are super faithful, like impressive human beings. Impressive. And is this the moment we break another nativity cliche and say, we don't know there's three, we just know there are three gifts? Yeah, did I say three guys? I think I did say three guys. Did no, I you say said guys? You've okay. been just using, but that's another nativity breaker. Yep. Like, we always just choose three. There's always three at Jesus' manger. Just, there's three gifts. We don't know how many guys showed up. Yep. We have no idea. Could have been two, could have been 200. And we're doing all of this because on outofwater.com, we will begin selling true nativity <laughs> kits, stone yeah. mangers, caves. And two years later, we will ship you the Magi for yeah. your nativity <laughs> Nice. Oh, that's good stuff. But yeah, so there's there's all kinds of, and the songs, We Three Kings of Orient. Yeah, like, all lies. Yeah, all lies. It could have been. There's three gifts. That's where we pull it from. I mean, they didn't just pull that out of nowhere. But, you know, I think I think they could probably. If you had a whole school of guys that have been jazzed for thousands <laughs> of years looking for this star, they finally see it. 
you're not just going to pick your top three prospects. They're all probably like, let's go. Yeah, let's do this. Uh, yeah, but there's a lot of those. So like the the wicker basket, manger, the the barn. You know, we were reading something in a devotional book this morning about a barn and mice scurrying around and there being, you know, another thing is, you know, there are references to like the the ox and and the donkey being a part of it and the prophetic literature but these i mean this is this is bethlehem these are animals that are destined for slaughter but we like to put you know the cow in there and you know it's like a modern day farm yeah like a modern day american farm and it's like mm, eh, probably not probably Didn't not have could have been those. could have been but probably not um and so <coughs> so the wise men are hanging out they give the gift they're worshiping and i mean you're imagining you're looking at a a baby that the heavens have directed you to, you know this is God in the flesh and he's unable to talk. Or, you know, he's barely walking maybe, you know. Probably at a fun age though. Yeah, but God, you know, you're holding God. You're playing goofy games with God. <laughs> like it, it would have been a wild reality to walk in and try to wrap your mind. Yeah. You're bowing down, then you're playing peekaboo and you're like, this is confusing. <laughs> Right? That would have been really confusing. Playing peekaboo with God. That's a, that is a weird thought. So anyway, after they have all of these interactions that are just absolutely wonderful and beautiful, it says they were warned in a dream not to return to Herod. And so they departed to their own country by another way. Great work. Amazing. So super faithful. They're defying the king to protect this child God. And, you know, one of the things that I've I've heard people preach, and it just, I, I kind of like it, is, you know, they come all this way to have this encounter with God and they leave by another way. And so the, the application is, when you have an encounter with God, you never leave the same way you came. Oh, give me that. I don't like that one. <laughs> You should have seen Will's facial expressions. He looked like he just bit into a lemon. That was tough. <laughs> but it's, you know, God is always going to send you out different than you came in. Bad application? I think, yeah. I think you can find that somewhere else better. <laughs> if you really want to make that happen. All right. I'm, ju- I'm just looking. Okay. All right. I probably should cut that out because no, I feel dumb it. now. Keep it. I think people should know <laughs> Sam sometimes has bad ideas. I do sometimes. Yeah. Just sometimes. All right, so now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and your mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. So you go back and this talks about this in Revelation too. Remember the passage where it's like the woman clothed in the sun and the dragon is waiting to devour the child. A lot of Mm -hmm. people will interpret that to be Herod, right? He's the picture of of the serpent at work in the world to devour the child who's just waiting for him while he fills this role. And it says, he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Hosea 11.1. So there's a couple of things that are interesting going on here. Like we know that they go to Egypt and they stay there for until Herod dies. Nobody, there's a huge range of possibilities there. So, and it doesn't say that like as soon as Herod died, then they'd returned. It's just after Herod dies, they get notified and they return. So it could have been a year after, a day after, three years after. 
But one of the things that you go and you look at the early church that was closest to the time, and you find that pretty well the average people believe that it's three years. Revelation, when it talks about in that same passage with the woman clothed in the sun, it says that the woman went out into the wilderness for 1,260 days, I think is the number, which works itself out to be three and a half years. Um, divide all that out. And so they stay in Egypt, and the, the consensus is that he's going to come back somewhere between the ages of four and six. So he would have learned Egyptian. He would have learned as a child some of the different things. He would have spoken Hebrew. He would have spoken Greek. He would have spoken Egyptian. And a lot of the early skeptics, which is now we're going on a nerd archaeology moment. Will is again making faces. So excited. <laughs> Brace yourself. A lot of the people that you find that contested against Christianity in its early days, they don't say that Jesus didn't exist. You don't find anybody who says that. You never find someone who says, oh, he was a myth. The other thing that you don't find is people who say he didn't do miracles. Hmm. It's all fake. If you go to the, the Babylonian Talmud, it talks about how Jesus was put to death on the eve of Passover, and it was for leading, it says, for leading Israel astray and for practicing sorcery. Well, why do you say that he practiced sorcery unless he was doing pretty wild things? The most famous of all the skeptics was a Roman poet named Celsus, and his theory that he put out, like he, he talks about the miracle of multiplying bread. He talks about the miracles of raising the dead. And he, it's not like he says, no, he never did any of that stuff. He owns it and says, yes, but it was because Jesus spent time in Egypt, in Egypt with the best magicians, and these are just the tricks of jugglers. And Jesus actually went to Egypt and was, it says, highly elated upon the skills of the magicians, and he returned and gave himself out as a god. So, right, I know. Four-year-old so, Jesus yeah, right. just taking in a lot. <laughs> so dumb. But that was the main argument when Rome was trying to stamp out Jesus. What they could not do is say, he never did any of this stuff. He didn't exist. Because the, the generational memories of what he did in so many different places was seared into that community. Nobody could say he didn't exist. Nobody tried to say he didn't do miraculous works. Both sides who despised him, both the Jewish religious leaders and the Romans, dismissed him as a wicked sorcerer, which, by the way, when Jesus was alive, that's what they said. You know, he does all this stuff by the powers of Beelzebub, right? They believed he was satanic and practicing sorcery. You know what no one says? He never did that, which tells you he lived and he did some pretty wild stuff. And so, all the early skeptics do some pretty wild stuff with the fact that he spent time in Egypt. Like, oh, that's where he learned all his sorcery. That's it's interesting. interesting. Yeah. yeah. And I think it's interesting that I've heard that because of the wise men's gold, they were able to live in Egypt for so long. Hmm. Could be, yeah. That, like so that was God's, God's provision. Like, hey, I know you're about to be booted from the land, and you know, I'm sure they could work odd jobs, but I'm not sure as a Jew in those different worlds how that would have gone. That's awesome. I'd, I'd never put that together. Yeah, that makes total sense. I mean, it's almost as good as my, he went back and they went back another way. That was really Conjecture, good. but. I think it was, mine was a little better, but. <laughs> yeah, yours is definitely better. I feel dumb for having offered up That's mine good. right now. Everyone should feel dumb on a podcast every <laughs> now and again. All right. And so then when he says, um, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt, I called my son. 
That is referring to a prophecy that comes out of Hosea. It's in chapter 11. Is that what you said? Chapter 11. And the whole idea, if you remember, like when we started going through our Exodus podcast, what is Egypt always associated with? Death. It's always associated with death and judgment. When, Like when Abraham goes down there, he gets Hagar and all kinds of bad stuff and judgments kind of follow him because of his time in, e- in Egypt. Isaac, when the famine comes, God's like, do not go down to Egypt. He tells the, the prophet Isaiah, you know, do not go down to Egypt. Like, do not put your trust in Pharaoh. Put your trust in me. And Egypt, because it's crowned by the serpent and all that other stuff, is always symbolic of the kingdom of the enemy. It's the kingdom of death. It's the kingdom of slavery. And so when it says, out of Egypt, I called my son, it's not just a nod. Now, this is me. This is my thought. It's not just a nod to the fact that, okay, Jesus is going to be born. He's going to rush down into Egypt to escape from here. And eventually, he's going to come back from Egypt. That's true. But in a broader pattern, God is going to call his son out of death. Hmm. He is going to conquer the spiritual Egypt eventually, which I think is kind of cool. Verse 16, eventually Herod realizes these guys aren't coming back. Sucker. <laughs> yeah. he's, he's waiting and waiting and waiting. Uh, it says, then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. Not good. Yeah, you don't want to be around Herod, Herod right now. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and, and all that region who were two years old and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Yeah, so... One of the things that that actually in studying some of the historical evidence on this is interesting because like I love archaeology, so I started digging around like why is there no historical record of a whole bunch of babies being slaughtered in Bethlehem? And the reality is like I, I came across um, William Albright's considered the father of biblical archaeology, and he dug into this and what he says is remember how bethlehem is described by micah it's the least among the clans of judah it's just a small little podunk town and so when william albright's doing the archaeological digs all through bethlehem to try to figure out how big of a town it would have been at this time he says that it was probably in the first century about 300 people lived there and so if, if their demographics looked exactly like what you would expect for the rest of any part of the country back then a town of 300 people is going to have maybe five to 10 children who are under two. Mm. And so like in my mind, when I've always read the story, I just imagine this great genocide and Herod's just slaughtering, you know, hundreds of children. Well, the reality in a, in a tiny little town and the outskirts of that tiny little town, you're only going to have a small handful of children. And considering Herod's body count, this wouldn't have made the newspaper. Um, but it's also like, I don't know what that does to you, but it, I'm kind of glad that this massacre wasn't as big as I'd always imagined it to be still pretty horrific. Yeah. It's not good, but so then Matthew, right. As soon as, as Herod is, is killed all these children, Matthew pulls in a prophecy from Jeremiah that, that stumps commentators and seems like it's way out of context. He says this. And verse 18, a voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. And so this is weird because Rachel is not 
the the mother who gives birth to Judah, which would be the line of Bethlehem. And in fact, Ramah is not even in Bethlehem. But let me tell you what's going on here. If you jump back into the days of Jeremiah, one of his chief complaints against Israel is that they were engaging in this really wicked, idolatrous worship where they would take their sons and throw their sons into the fire of idolatrous worship. They were killing their own kids. And so, and it always says that when they would sacrifice their children, they would do so in the high places. Well, in Hebrew, Ramah, remember it says a voice was heard in Ramah. Well, in Hebrew, Ramah literally means the high place. And it's saying, Rachel is weeping for all these lost children. That's what Jeremiah is talking about. Children who have been sacrificed by Israelites. And now you have Herod who is killing Israelite children. But in Jeremiah's passage, if you go on beyond what is just shared here in Matthew, it becomes really beautiful because God says, Listen to this in verse 21 of Jeremiah 31, that same chapter. He says, set up road signs like they're going to come back from exile. They're going to come back. Set up road signs, put up guideposts, take note of the highway, the road that you take. And then listen to this language. Return, O virgin Israel, return to your towns. Like I let you go. I put you into exile because of your wickedness, but I am bringing you back now. And then listen to this promise. The Lord will create a new thing on earth. And you know what that's always referring to? He's creating a new thing. God, Jesus is, is making all things new. It's, he's bringing the power of resurrection. He's making new beginnings. And this is the sign that Jeremiah closes this out with, right? You got all these dead babies. You got the exile. God's promised that he's going to restore a new covenant and all that stuff in this same chapter. And this is the sign. The Lord will create a new thing on earth. And listen to this. A woman will encircle a man, and the Hebrew word there for man is gibor. It means a warrior. A woman will encircle a man. How in the world do you make sense of that? How can a woman literally encircle a man? Well, there's only one time where that's possible. Pregnancy. Hmm. A woman is going to be pregnant with a warrior who is going to come and fix all of this. And so when Matthew's pointing you back to Jeremiah, it's the same passage that's talking about this new covenant that's coming, where God is going to redeem us from all of our wickedness, where he's going to build the signpost, he's going to give us a way back from all of our slavery and exile and everything else, except he's going to do it so much bigger than the stupid Babylonian exile. He's going to rescue us from our slavery to sin, he's going to rescue us from our exile of Eden, he is going to save us from the curse of death all because a woman is encircling this warrior. He's going to come to redeem all things. It's a really beautiful prophecy, but you got to dig a little bit to get there. And it says, when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, rise, hear that. That's the same word for resurrection, right? Rise, you're in Egypt, the land of death. No, 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 rise. Take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. This is also repeating the patterns of Moses, by the way. Remember, he runs from Egypt and goes back to Egypt when he hears that Pharaoh is dead. Now you have this in reverse for Joseph and Mary. They're going back to Israel from Egypt when they hear Herod is dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea, 
and the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. So he goes back home to Nazareth, which is where they came from in the first place. That's where Gabriel first appeared to both of them, and so now they're going back home. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that Jesus would be called a Nazarene. And so there we conclude our story of the Magi, um, these really, really wonderful, impressive people um, who kind of show us how to worship, who show us what it means to genuinely always be looking for the Lord and to lay down everything to go to him. And we see the beauty of God and the sovereignty of God weaving the story together to protect the Savior in order to protect us as well. Amazing. All right, so even though that is technically not part of the Christmas story, um, we'll allow it. We'll, we're going to allow it for the for this go round. We serve an awesome, awesome God who gave up all the luxuries to come into this world to be that little child. He is worthy of our worship, and we hope that you do so in big fashion this Christmas. That you have a joyful Christmas, worshiping the Lord, drawing near to family, remembering what is deserving to be in your high priority list. We hope you join us next week for another episode of the Out of Water Podcast. God bless. We hope you enjoyed your time with us and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash outofwater. Water.